Morning, everybody. So we are in uh, 1 John. Uh, we'll be heading into uh, chapter 2. Um, we'll probably start reading uh, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. Uh, you know, chapter 1 is a very short chapter. Uh, and the first couple of verses in chapter 2 pick up the themes and actually complete the thought of what John was speaking of uh, in those verses right before. So, um, so I'll start by reading uh, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there are several um, uh, things that um, we'll pick up uh, in 1 John 1 and carry through to chapter 2. And uh, several times we... Uh, early in the passage, uh, he reminds us that God is light and uh, we should be uh, in God's light. And if we're in God's light, we're not going to be in darkness. And then there's this concept of uh, walking in the light. And that refers to our behavior and how we're doing things. And we'll pick up this concept of, of walking in accordance with, with um, uh, God's ways as opposed to our ways um, in a moment. Uh, but then the other thing is there's this concept about uh, what do you think about sin and, and um, what's this difference between what you say and uh, how you behave. And um, recall that some people believe that uh, John was writing in response to people who uh, said they were fine, who uh, maybe not Gnostics, but maybe those who would one day become Gnostics. Uh, where the concept of knowledge was elevated above uh, the body. And they would say, no, I'm fine. Uh, my spirit is totally fine. Um, yeah, I know my, you may see me sinning, but that's just my body. Uh, my mind and my spirit are just fine. Uh, and, and so John's calling out this disconnect. Um, uh, and again, uh, some people are more inclined to see his... Um, replies and argument against these groups. Uh, some people say um, that he was just writing to the what he saw among the people that he was uh, kind of spiritually responsible for. And uh, then, of course, uh, both may be true. But this concept of the difference between um, what we say and what we do. And, and then again, the reminder that he's writing to Christians. Uh, he's primarily writing to Christians, and so uh, he he acknowledges that there, you know, Christians are going to sin. Uh, but then it, he says in verse nine, uh, "There's a way back. There's a way back into fellowship uh, with 
with God. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we talked about uh, this faithfulness um, of reconciliation, but also why it was just. And the reason it was just was because uh, Christ already paid that penalty. uh, So it would actually be unjust for God to penalize us when he's already penalized his son. Um, So that uh, there's not a dual penalty there. So let's look more closely then at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children, and and this is um, uh, not a put down. This is a term of endearment, um, just where you could just imagine this, um, this uh, last remaining person um, on earth that had walked and talked with Jesus, who had been by him from the very earliest times when he was there fishing and was called for it along with his brother James um, to be part of of the 12 and, and even more so part of this closest group, um, uh, Peter, James, and John, that seemed to be especially close to Jesus and uh, the one to whom he said, um, you know, take care of my mom, you know, just so close. And um, you can imagine how the people felt about John, um, this this you know, really a connection with Christ that he must have had their respect. And so when he says, um, uh, my dear little children, um, my dear ones, um, it's definitely a term of endearment um, as, a, as a, uh, a spiritual father to these people. Um, he says, he, you know, it's just like, I really am saying all of these things because I care for you. I love you. I want the best for you. Um, it's all just bathed in that kind of a sentiment when he says, my little children. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Uh, he desperately wants them to stay out of sin. Uh, he wants them to, uh, to be in God's light, like he just said. And, and he's going to talk about the importance of not sinning so that you stay in right relationship with God. But um, I'm sure, you know, we could probably imagine that he's also wanting them to avoid the consequences of sin you know sometimes uh, the consequences of sin are harder to deal with than because we can we can be right with the father um, with with the prayer and with repentance right but sometimes the consequences of our sin aren't so easy to get rid of and uh, so he's probably thinking of that as well you know uh, I want you to just stay away from it. It's not good for you. It's it's going to harm you, and it's not consistent with who you are as a child of God. But he's acknowledging, um, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If Christians were, quote, naturally sinless after they got saved, he wouldn't need to write this, right? He wouldn't need to encourage them. He's you know, the very fact that he's saying this is obvious that he's recognizing that they will sin. But then he says quickly, there is a way out. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with Father Jesus, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So this concept of advocate, we have, um, uh, they, they point out it is somewhat of a legal term. Um, it's, it's a similar word uh, that, well, it is the same word that is sometimes used in reference to the Holy Spirit. It's one called alongside, but it also had a legal connotation where it was one called alongside to kind of represent you and defend you. Now, there's, a, there's some correlates here, um, but uh, 
but there's some important differences if you think of judicial setting. So here's my guesstimate on how this would play out. So um, here I am, um, I am um, accused, uh, I am brought before the judge. Um, my defense attorney is right there beside me. He has explained to me all that's coming. He has explained to me what I am accused of. He has carefully explained to me the ramifications of all the things I have done. He's explained what I'm up against, what I might expect. He's explained to me what the evidence is perhaps against me. He's explained the character of the judge that we have been assigned to, right? That might all correlate pretty well with a human trial, right? But then a human attorney's job is to get up and to make the most of their client, right? You know, I know the prosecution is saying so-and-so about my client, but gosh, just look how wonderful my client is. Look, you know, it's not, it's not like they say. It's not like, you know, he's not that bad. You know, he wasn't, you know, responsible. You know, he was an idiot, you know, whatever. Um, he's saying, he's, he's trying to bring out my good merits to bring before the judge so that I look better, so that the, the defendant looks better, right? But that's where it falls apart because... In this hypothetical scenario where Jesus is my advocate, he rises up after the prosecution has made their case and says, it's all true. In fact, it's worse than you think. You don't, you don't know the half of it. He is so guilty. He deserves everything he's got coming and then some. But you know what? I got this. You just take me instead. You take me, and whatever he's got coming, you just put it on me. So this is a really different kind of advocacy, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's, as we head into this very next phrase, it becomes even more um, important. Verse 2, it says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this propitiation. So um, unbeknownst to me, apparently this is a word of some debate amongst uh, Bible scholars, uh, because this word in the Greek was typically used of the pagan gods. And the pagan gods, for whatever reason, you might think that the pagan gods were offended. Right? So you're laying your idols before the pagan gods and, and life is not turning out like you think, so you assume in this weird economy that, that you must have done something to offend the gods and the gods require some sort of appeasement. So therefore, you need to make a sacrifice to these uh, capricious, jealous, vengeful, crazy gods that you have somehow offended, right? And this was the thinking. You remember we saw as we went through Jeremiah, that there were people who were sacrificing their children to these crazy gods there in the, in the garbage heap on the outskirts of Jerusalem, right? So this was, this was a thing. And this term was used 
this propitiation, it was used as an appeasement to these pagan gods. So a lot of Bible scholars say, well, that's not, that's not the God of the Bible. Um, maybe it doesn't mean that. And uh, because it's, it's different than that. And so they try to explain it away. But then other scholars say, well, no, the appeasement for God is not like these pagan gods. But, but there is a sense in that God's wrath toward your sin has to be taken care of. That has to be dealt with. And so it kind of pulled into this... Um, pulled into this concept of propitiation um, has to do with um, with satisfying the wrath of God toward our sins. Um, apparently, there's just a couple of passages uh, in the Bible that use this word, and, and they're all by John. Um, if you'll turn over, let me get the reference, um, 1 John 4, just a couple pages over, verse 10. And you can see that, once again, the concept of God's love just bathes everything. Uh, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this isn't some crazy God who wants to take out his wrath on us, there is wrath to be dealt with, but it says he actually sent his son to be the recipient of that and to take care of that uh, on our behalf. Um, so this is, you know, just more of the the crazy mystery, hard to understand, the full depth of the grace of God and the uh, benefit that was applied to us on our behalf uh, because of the work of Jesus. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only, but for the sins of the world. Uh, this brings in this whole concept of the doctrine of atonement. Uh, this concept of a reconciliation with God, and, and what was it actually that God did um, by placing Jesus on the cross and Jesus submitting himself to that? Um, what was that? And... Uh, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology text that uh, Pastor Bobby has distributed across the church, um, there's a whole big section, as you might expect, on the atonement, and he brings in two things. He said, the, if you really want to understand the atonement, you have to understand that, yes, um, there was this submission to the, the actions that happened on the cross, but it was also the fact that he lived this perfect life. And because he lived this perfect life and was, you might say, the ultimate example of righteous living, that's why God can see us as righteous when that's applied to us. This was kind of strange. I never thought about it. They said, well, you know, if it was all just about a sacrifice and, and the death, he could have been killed as an infant. That he had to live this perfect life and show through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that, that it could be done and that he could live this righteous life. That is really the only reason it could be applied to us. It's a concept that I'm not sure I have really got my head around, uh, but it's something I put out for you to kind of 
kind of chew on that for a bit because it's something I've not really thought about that it's only because Jesus lived a perfect life can that righteousness be applied to me. And that's why when God looks at me, he doesn't see dirty, rotten, scoundrel art. In reality, he sees just the righteousness of Christ applied to me. And even that's hard to fathom, of course. He's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Well, well, this is an interesting phrase that has also caused a lot of debate across um, various places. What does it mean when it says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? And there are people who say, well, see, God loves everyone. God loves everyone. And, you know, it's just all going to work out. Because it says right here, he died for the sins of the whole world. If he died for the sins of the whole world, then who are we to say that that didn't happen? And then, as you might imagine, it gets, you know, scholars start to roll up their sleeves and, uh, and kind of get ready for the debate because um, there's a lot of weird logic stuff that happens. So people might say, well, if this is true, if you believe that the work of Jesus on the, Christ, uh, on the cross was effective and if it was um, uh, intended for the whole world, then it was intended for the whole world. And therefore you have this universalism kind of approach that people say, well, no, that can't be true. So he must have just, because if he died for someone, they would be saved so it must just apply to those whom God elected. But our gifts not a gift until you accept it. So this is where we kind of choke on some of these concepts, John. Um, so the what are called the um, five point Calvinists, if you've heard of this term, and there is an acronym T U L I P, the word tulip. The L stands for limited atonement. So you're your full-bore five-point Calvinist is going to say uh, this was a limited atonement. Christ really only died for all those who would accept him, for God's elect. And people will say, well, how does that square with the verses that say, but whosoever will may come, right? And um, uh, the other side of that, this um, whosoever will may come of... Um, not really philosophy, but this, uh, there's a certain amount of heritage there uh, in uh, many evangelical uh, faiths, including Baptist faith, where, uh, you know, we don't really talk a whole lot about uh, election uh, because we think that gets in the way of, of really enticing people to come, and, and some people just have a problem with that. Um, there are some people who are called four-point Calvinists that they like the, the T, the U, the I, and the P, and I'm not going to go with those, but, but they don't even like the, this limited atonement thing. And um, so the, the bottom line is that, um, as Dad has often says, there are some things in Scripture that really defy human logic, and sometimes you just have to leave it in God's hand and say, yep, I know the work of Jesus on the Christ, cross was effective, I know it was applied to me. I believe it when he said the offer is there, you know, for God so loved the world 
right? That he gave his only begotten son. We know this verse that we can believe that and somehow it's all fair. You know, who am I to say God's not fair, right? Uh, and we just have to trust it uh, to God that it's going to work out. But there is a way around at least this particular verse, which I found surprisingly satisfying. So we're not going to go too far down the road of, um, of Calvinism, of course, but I do like the solution with this, but also for the sins of the whole world phrase. One commentator, uh, and I think he may have been quoting somebody else, so this, you know, apparently there's somewhat of a consensus about this. He says, if John was writing from the perspective of a Jew, as he would have been, with hundreds of years of animal sacrifice in the temple um, and understanding all that process and how that uh, dealt with sin for a time and, and then how you know, Jesus did away with that and instituted something new, if he was writing from that perspective, it might very easily be read something like this. Instead of it says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, you might say, he is a propitiation for our, our sins. And not for just us Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And I think that makes sense, right? That captures why he would say, um, for the sins of the whole world, just like you would say, no, it's not just for Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. And of course, most of Romans is is Paul working through that concept. So I, I found that to be uh, pretty satisfying. On to, oh, was, yes, of course. So I, I think I kind of, in my mind, kind of keep the KISS method. Keep it simple. simple. Keep it simple. <laughs> so I think of it like you're a doctor and you know of a cure, right, for polio. If I don't come, let's just say it's a pill, and I decide, no, I'm not going to have that for my family. But you still have the cure, and it cures the whole, the whole world that's been taken care of with this pill. If I decide not to do that, that's on me. Right. That's not on God. That's my refusal, right? Right. So it still does, it still, the pill does cover the whole world. Right. The sins have been paid for by a holy God who's infinite and can cover all the people that haven't even been born yet. Right. Right? So past, present, and future is taken care of by that one statement. If you don't take the pill, he was saying, if you don't accept Christ, that's on you. So the, the concept, um, and I agree with you, um, if you think about perspective, that I think is a helpful way. So if we think about from the human perspective, we have an offer of salvation, of reconciliation, of freedom from the bondage of sin that is theirs as we appropriate it by faith, right? It, that offer, every, every altar call that is included a legitimate call in that fashion is very valid in my opinion and but and from a human perspective the way we access that is through faith right um, from the other perspective 
people would say, well, how do we even have that faith, right? Ephesians says, for we are saved by grace through faith, but even that doesn't come from within us, right? And, and some people would say, well, you wouldn't even be inclined to accept that offer if God hadn't already started that work of salvation in you, right? So that's where they start to bring in this election thing. things. So I think it's just a matter of perspective. And you guys, and I think we've talked about this before, conceptually, uh, some people have tried to solve this riddle, um, making the point of perspective, where you see this portal of entry. And as you're walking in this portal, it says, whosoever will may come. And so you walk through the portal. And you receive salvation. And then once you're there, you look over your shoulder and you see from God's perspective, the portal's uh, labeled something different and it says you know uh, about you know those who are elect have been saved and I can't really do any better than that and you know but again that's probably not the main point of this passage but it does speak of the atonement it does speak of the effectiveness of that and so forth so as we encounter these since we don't typically talk about doctrines topically as often as uh, we might um, when when they kind of you know when we're confronted by them by the text then it's our responsibility to at least address them and to let you know that those uh, challenges are out there uh, verse 3 and by the way uh, verses 1 and 2 that basically um, we could do a paragraph there because those best fit with those verses in, in, in chapter 1. So, verse 3. Somewhat of a new thought, but not fully. Uh, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So this is not a passage to say, well, you keep sinning, so therefore you're not a Christian. That's not what this is saying. Uh, it is saying, though, that um, habitual sin probably ought to raise some questions, right? Because it's one thing if I mess up and I know I mess up and I'm working on it and I'm confessing it and I'm asking God to deal with me about this. I'm asking him to grow me through this. That's, that's what most Christians go through, right? That's, that's, that's what most of our life is like after we accept Christ. Uh, we have, there's still work to do, right? Uh, and that whole process of sanctification, which is the fancy word we call it, that continues and won't be completed ultimately until Christ returns and we get our new bodies, right? <laughs> Come quickly, right? Um, but this habitual sin, someone what there is a clear disconnect between what they're saying and what they're claiming, probably ought to raise some questions as to whether or not they truly have a relationship with uh, God through Jesus uh, the way that we would think because you want to do the you you want to 
you want to do right, right? You want to be connected with your Heavenly Father, and you don't want to be doing things that disconnect you, right? And if we think in terms of our human relationships, if every time we opened our mouth, we offended our spouse, he or she might question, well, does that person really even love me? You know, why are we keep having the same conversation? You know, so, so there, this is, um, I think John just describing the reality. And this, whoever says, I know him. Again, that's also a little bit of a nod to these people who would elevate knowledge above, above practice. Verse 6, he who, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way you, in which he walked. And it, this verse made me think of uh, Ephesians. Um, you can turn there if you want. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Um, but I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, if I can get my fingers to turn. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, here's Paul saying, look, y'all, you are Christians called to a higher standard. You should be walking in accordance with that standard. It was like dad told us growing up, you know, remember who you are. You're Christians. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And this this continues. You could flip over to Ephesians 5. Therefore, be this is verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Verse 15, chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Um, so there's this call by Paul and, and here by John. Um, you, you, need to, you need to walk in accordance with the way that Jesus walked. We've talked about how 1 John is somewhat circular, that he keeps making the same point over and over. I wonder why he does that. Because we need to hear the same thing over and over. Um, I mean, how many times, bless his heart, Jeremiah had to keep telling the same thing. Y'all, repent, get rid of the idols, you know, for, you know, what, what did we say, 40 years? I mean, that's a long time to keep saying the same thing, but here John keeps saying the same thing. Verse 7. Beloved, again, this term of endearment, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Um, this you had from the beginning. This could refer to from the, the um, beginning of Jesus' ministry, or it could be referring to from their earliest time when they first started walking with Christ, when they were, when they were a new uh, Christian. Um, he said, the old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is pass away, passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, the work of Christ has already begun in you. That work of Christ with shining the light on your life and getting rid of the darkness is already happening. That light is already happening. That process is always continuing. But he says, again, he's calling us to, um, to get our behavior in line of, of our 
position. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Um, as I thought about this, I thought about the breadth of Christianity and that there are, there are people who would, if they talked about the reasons that they feel that they are Christians, right? I'm putting all of my faith in the work of Christ and that he did on the cross, his blood covering my sins, becoming part of God's family, they would tell the same salvation story, have all the elements in their story that I would have in mine. But there might be brothers and sisters with whom I would have such a hard disagreement about some other point, some other philosophy or some other view, that I might not have brotherly love toward them. I might not even like them. And it would be hard for me to get my head around the fact that we could even both call ourselves Christians because it would be hard for me to think that a Christian would ever even think that way. Right? Maybe I'm the only one who might imagine a situation like that. But here it says... I can't hate that person. I can't hate that brother. Even though I may think that they're mishandling scripture, I may think that they have an opinion that is not as well thought out as mine, and I think they may be just wrong in so many ways that it, I think they're not a good person. But it says I can't, I can't go there, so to speak, I can't hate them. I have to just say, well, we have huge differences, but you say you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to try to love you in whatever that looks like. And my hope is, as we have interactions with people perhaps who are more different than us, that we do find within us the grace that we can stay engaged, right? Because uh, we can't we can't properly influence others, and maybe they do need some correction or something but but relationship is always a better lead in to correction um, than being an adversary i think right uh, if If you have a conversation with someone uh, you're much more likely to to want to try to at least hear the other person out. Um, rather than somebody where you go into the conflict um, expecting a fight. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and so forth. And now we get to this little poetic section beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So who is he writing? Who is he referring to? Or to whom is he referring, I guess I should say. All of us, right? He's writing to all of us. Um, We've all been little children who are just at the point of acknowledging that we've been forgiven. We've all been, in essence, fathers where we can have the perspective to look back and see the big picture of things like you would do as you get some maturity to see kind of how the plan all falls together. He's, we've all been young men who are maybe engaged in, in wrestling with the concepts of the gospel and, and how to really apply those to life. So he's writing to all of us. This is simply a rhetorical device if he were to look out and say, you know, I know you and, and, and I know, you know, you women who have done this and you men who have done this and you kids who have done this. And it's just a kind of a way of speaking to the whole group. And that's, that's kind of what this means. Uh, we've all been in those, in those areas. And the point is that, that our life as Christians should be um, should be one of a relationship. It should be one where we're incorporating the gospel into all phases of our life and into all seasons of our life and recognizing that there are going to be, you know, there may be times when I'm coming across something or maybe I'm, I'm dealing with a situation I've not dealt with before. I may have an issue come up. Some may one may ask me a question about something. I just don't know. Sometimes you guys do that. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm like a young man. I'm wrestling with the scriptures, you know. And then there's sometimes when it just all falls into place. And I can perhaps briefly think of myself as uh, a father of the faith who said, Oh, my gosh, I, I see now, Lord, what you've been doing. And it just makes so much sense now that I can see the big picture. But then there are times I might still be a young kid where, where all I know is, is that I can have salvation and forgiveness of sin, right? So we're all of those things, and this is just a beautiful way of John expressing that, um, that, that the gospel can apply to all of those uh, phases of our life. And then another admonishment beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um, We're not so rigid that we would really see a conflict here, right? it baffles me that some people would see a conflict here. They say, well, it says God so loved the whole world. And here it says we're not supposed to love the world. And I would just say, don't be stupid. (laughs) You know good and well that's not what John's saying. (laughs) Come on. Well, God so loved the whole world. That's the the human soul of the whole world. Yeah. This world is material, a lot of material things. Exactly. He's not talking about the people, right? He's talking about worldliness. He's talking about the things that the world is after, 
right? This is a contrast between the things of God and the things not of God, right? You know, to any scholar who would really try to say that that's what, I mean, I just say, come on, you can do better than that. But there are people who have done that. I, you know, I just, it makes no sense. If anyone loves the world, the, father of love, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, and this is just, again, an, an admonishment, recognizing we don't live in a bubble, right? Uh, Satan is always wanting to trip us up. He's always wanting to influence us. He's always wanting to, you know, cut off our reputation, our legacy, our, our impact for the gospel. He's always wanting to drag us down and keep us from a good relationship with the Lord. Um, and this is just this, this pastorly, elderly, fatherly, spiritual figure saying, you know, just stay away from that. You know, don't, don't go down the roads that you see these other people doing. That's not where, that, that's, that's not the neighborhood you live in anymore. That's not where your satisfaction is going to come from. That's just, that's just artificial. It's fake. It's not satisfying. You're not going to like yourself in the morning. Let's stay, let's stay on the right path. Let's stay in the light. And that's what he's saying here. All right. Appreciate the participation today. Anybody else have anything on this? I'll let Dad talk about Antichrist next week. <laughs> I would, uh, those of you that, that have access to the Systematic Theology book um, by uh, Wayne Grudem, I would highly commend that to you. Um, but if you don't want to go through a four-inch thick volume uh, and if you want to do something for free, which if it's free, it's for me, right? Uh, I'll have mom send out a link. I found that past, I think he's a pastor as well as a seminary professor, uh, Wayne Grudem, who I didn't realize actually was one of the translators of the ESV that translation that I use. I found where he basically taught his whole book in a Sunday school format to his church out in Arizona, and it's on podcast for free. And it's just like he's teaching Sunday school, right? So I'll have mom send out that link. Uh, I, this past week I went through, he did like three sections on the inerrancy of scripture. If anybody's ever tripped you up on these little problems like, well, it said here he cursed the fig tree on Monday and now the disciples said it happened immediately and then Matthew says it was on Tuesday and, you know, so clearly you can't trust the Bible, Right, all those little problems, he works through them, you know, and he talks about why we can trust the Bible, and he does, you know, it looks like I haven't looked through the whole list, but these were all uploaded, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, and I found it on Apple Podcast, and uh, so you can just listen to it for free. It's awesome, um, and having read some of the stuff that he did in class. I like the class stuff better. As good as the writing is, he's an amazing writer. Anyway, so I'll have mom send out that link. And I may actually read or listen to the one on the atonement this week <laughs> since I've opened that can of worms. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, there are mysteries that, that we can't necessarily explain, but, but that you are a God that we can always trust. We thank you for the effectiveness and the completeness of the sacrificial work of Jesus through whom 
uh, we can uh, be part of your family at, at this late hour, uh, that we can be grafted in to everything you have had in design for your people. Uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.